Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Kat Young and I'm the founder of Salt and Sass, a Berlin-based event that aims to connect, celebrate and bring visibility to women working in the music industry. This year, the Salt and Sass team, which consists of myself, Christine Kakare and Elisa Stolman, are collaborating with Resident Advisor to publish our public conversations with inspiring women as RA exchanges. For our second installment, we spoke with Liz Miller. Miller's two-decade career has been marked by an instinct for early adoption. She was one of the first employees at Beatport, where she convinced reluctant record label owners of digital music's potential in the early 2000s. Then she worked as an independent marketing consultant for the likes of Richie Houghton's Minus Roster, where she advised artists on the ins and outs of online promotion. She later entered the mainstream spotlight, heading to the label Big Beat, where she had a front row view of the EDM explosion working with booming artists like Skrillex. These days, she's helping Spearhead Dubset, a startup initiative that's wading into the tricky world of publishing rights for unlicensed remixes and DJ mixes. In conversation with Christine Kakare, Miller's varied experiences tell the story of a woman pushing towards the shifts and changes behind dance music's evolution over the past 20 years. You can find the full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow RA on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Liz Miller is up next. Everybody. Just for a bit of context for everybody else, if we sound like we're being super familiar, it's because we've known each other for almost 10 years. Yes. Yeah. But I actually wanted to start a little bit more recently because oh, okay. <laughs> I know that you very recently just flew in from Ibiza. I did. <laughs> you, were, you were celebrating. <laughs> All a, too recently. You were celebrating a birthday, which unfortunately I couldn't yeah. attend for a multitude of reasons. I know, but you've made it up to me by showering me with this <laughs> adulation. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. And like 99% of the reason why I was really bummed I couldn't make it was for your birthday. But the 1% of the reasons why I was really bummed is because I've never been to Ibiza before. So I still what? have this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you didn't tell me that. I would have put a lot more pressure on you. I would have guilt tripped you uh, all the way to Ibiza. Ibiza. Maybe next year. Yeah. But I really wanted to ask you, as somebody who I know has been to Ibiza a lot of times, both for leisure and for professional reason, some kind of crossover <laughs> of the two, yeah. how has it changed in your opinion and in your view? <laughs> I honestly would say not that much, Okay. really. I mean, I think Ibiza is a special place in that you'll see the billboards. And when I first came... It was, it was very exciting the first time I went there. I was doing a study abroad in Barcelona and I was reading a book about the history of Acid House and was only about halfway through the book and I was reading all about this island, Ibiza. And I would walk around Barcelona and see that name on all these travel agency listings and think, it must be pretty close to here, obviously. <laughs> I convinced my roommate for my study abroad for, for learning Spanish that we should go, and, and we stopped by a travel agency on a Friday, and she said, yeah, we can get you there in two hours. And I was like, we should do that. <laughs> Let's go. And I mean, I was obsessed with dance music culture, of course, at this point. I was living in Colorado, 
and it was 1998. And at that point, you know, it, it, the internet existed, of course, but nobody was using it in any real practical terms for that kind of thing. I was working for a rave promoter. My whole life was raves. <laughs> but I, I didn't know much about the world outside of the U.S. because there just wasn't a lot of information. I was even I was working at a record shop. I thought I knew a lot, but I didn't know anything about Ibiza, which just speaks to how different the cultures developed yet somehow at the same time. So I'd heard about Ibiza, and I knew that it had some connection to dance music, but the book was saying it was this kind of, you know, very bohemian, hippie island where people were just, like, living in tents, and this is the image I had when we booked these flights. And we literally just took a backpack and put, like, a change of clothes. I think we maybe even just took one toothbrush between us. Like, like the most bare minimum. Like, we just need swimsuits and towels. What else could we need? And we rushed to the airport. We got on the plane. And I'm sitting in my in my seat. I, I get the you know the brochure out in front of me, and I look at the map of the island, and I'm like, oh god, there's there's more than one city in Ibiza. So I look across the island, there's like a ten year old boy, and I'm like, excuse me, which city should we go to? And he's <laughs> like, San Antonio. Kind of gives me like one look over, and uh, <laughs> so anyway, I, I won't go into every great detail, but except to say that. We got into this taxi, we blagged a ride with these Greek guys into San Antonio, and they were going to Cafe Del Mar, they'd heard about the sunset, and so we went with them, and in the ride, I'll never forget, and I even get goosebumps saying it now, like, just hearing that the cab was playing dance music, and the cafes were playing dance music, and there was dance music coming out of shops and everywhere, and it was so overwhelming to me to be surrounded by the culture that I, it was so hard to get a hold of in the States. You had to trade mixtapes. You had to go to raves. There was nothing on the radio. And then we got to Cafe Del Mar, watched the sunset. I cried, of course. <laughs> and so, yeah, just, just last weekend, I went to Cafe Del Mar for the first time since then, 19 years later. And while the building itself has changed immensely, I have to say that the vibe has not. And it, it was... Really, it's it's really a, a special, special place, and I and I've heard people say, you know, Ibiza is like the worst of the worst. In fact, I heard someone directly quote that the other day, <laughs> like this is the end of humanity, which I thought was a little drastic. I guess the little raver inside of me is still overwhelmed to come out of the airport and see friendly faces, people I know, on the billboards, and even to the extent that you know you'll have black coffee highlighting headlining a night and. Hotson's 82 headlining a night, you know, and David Guetta I didn't even see a billboard for. And so for me, sure, maybe it's awful in a lot of ways, but to me it's still really special. So it sounds like you've never <laughs> lost contact with that idealistic young yeah, raver uh, yeah. that first tumbled out of a cab That's me. at Café Del Mar. Yeah, <laughs> and I think the island hasn't either. Excellent. Yeah. Well, let's kind of dial back to okay. the beginning, to Colorado. I imagine that a lot of people that you know, like in this room and in Berlin in general and in the music industry in a larger sense would know that you're one of the original staff members from Beatport. Yes, staff um, member, you've said it right. <laughs> I am not a founder of Beatport, thank you. Is that a mistake that people often yes, make? the number okay. one. That and that I signed Skrillex. There you I go. I did not. <laughs> Just take it and run with it. Uh, yeah, sometimes I let it go. <laughs> Depends how many free drinks are involved. <laughs> Because I remember speaking to um, one other former colleague who 
said I was like employee number six, like my employee number was yes. six. Where, where were you? Was that two. you actually? I was no, no, I was number oh, two. Number two. How yeah. did that come together? So the rave promoter I was working for, he was one of the three founding members and I was already working for him and, and actually I was away in England trying to, uh, I was like, I'm leaving you guys and I'm going where Pete Tong is on the airwaves. <laughs> And I was going to get a job for, like, Glastonbury. And I was going to leave it all behind. And I called home to ask to get on the guest list for a festival, of course. And he said, I need you to come home. I've been waiting for you to call because I didn't have an email address. <laughs> 2003. And he said, I need you to come home. And uh, I'm starting this company called Beatport, and I need your help. And I was out of money anyway, so... I, I went home and I just trusted him. And so I worked for him. My real salary came from him working in the nightclubs. We had every DJ coming in. We were working for a couple different clubs in town. And my job was the liaison to pick them up from the airport and drive the 40 minutes into the city to take them to their hotel because we couldn't afford cars for them at that point. And I had them as a captive audience to tell them about Beatport. Oh, yes. great. Literally a captive audience. Yes, 40 minutes. <laughs> Thank you, DIA. <laughs> DIA is the, the reason Beatport exists. Yeah. And when you kind of joined the, the company as employee number two, like, was it kind of defined where the company was going and where you could go with it? Or was it just, I'm doing this thing, I'm no, going to be a it part was, of it? <laughs> I mean, I really trusted him, of course. Like, still do. Still very close. Brad Roulier, shout out. I just knew that there was this enthusiasm and the idea made sense. It, I think I think it's important to listen to that little inner voice when you hear somebody pitching an idea and it ju there's just no more questions. It's just like, yes, that's what's needed. Yes, this is how it should be. And you just move forward confidently in the direction and you hope that everything else around it is in place to support that initiative which it was, thank God. <laughs> it's interesting you bring up that kind of concept of like listening to your inner voice because as we already established, I've known you for a really long time, but when I was like looking through your LinkedIn today, I kind of realised that you've been in kind of certain positions and in certain companies at pretty momentous times, like yes. joining Beatport at the beginning and yeah. kind of seeing in this legitimization, I guess, of digital music yeah. within electronic music. And then we'll, we'll talk about some of the other jobs that you've done, like moving over to Minus, which I think was really important as a huge brand. I think they really kind of took yeah. that idea and ran with it. And then, of course, you went to Big Beat, yeah. where you signed Skrillex, right? <laughs> right yeah, where I signed Skrillex. <laughs> Write it down. Yeah. But what was it like kind of selling people in on this idea, people who were used to lugging around vinyl or lugging around CDs perhaps and saying there's this other way of doing what you do? Well, it was fucking fun, I'll tell you, because I knew I was right. Okay. <laughs> it's really easy to sell something when you know you're right. You know, we knew that, you know, the vinyl market was in real trouble. It was too expensive to produce. It took too long to distribute. People were not making the kind of money they needed to stay afloat. Distributors were shutting down with everyone's stock inside, which was putting labels out of business. And we had this very obvious answer, and we knew it was the future. It was just a matter of convincing people. At first, you know, they would say, if I give you my WAV file, I'll never sell another record again because it'll just be stolen. And it was so easy to answer that. Your shit's already out there. Like, 
it's already on the internet. That's already happened. You just don't have any way to have people who want to pay for it pay for it. So yeah, like I can even sell it now. So it's so it was so easy, you know. And I was so enthusiastic and so excited to talk to these people who were my heroes and like to call up to the UK and talk to somebody at Defected Records. Was like, oh my god, you know. So the enthusiasm plus the certainty that you had a product that they needed and that could help their business was mm-hmm. yeah was just super fun. And so when when did you join Beatport and when did you get the sense that there was a bit of a sea change that people, that you weren't so much having to sell people in on this idea? So I started in September of 2003 and by 2005, it was more just dealing with the influx of interest. Mm-hmm. But yeah, 2000, like 2004 was when we really had to hard sell. I mean, we actually had someone come in and teach us how to do cold calls. Like instructional, like yeah, yeah. how do you keep somebody on the phone that doesn't want to talk to you? <laughs> I don't know that that helped at all, honestly, but it was a good idea, maybe. By 2005, it was just a rolling. Now it was just about negotiating with people about trying to, they're trying to get better contracts. It's like, no, everybody's got the same one. Just, it was administrative almost at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it became political <laughs> in a lot of ways. Once sure. people are making the majority of their money, from one area, it becomes very politicized. And then I think that also I really enjoyed, you know, trying to be the buffer between two worlds, the, you know, the Beatport world and the label world, and trying to communicate the needs on either side and come to the best solution. I also enjoyed that part of the job later. I imagine it would be, I mean, I'm saying this, and I did do a similar role to you. (laughs) There is an element of kind of exhaustion I guess suppose mm. where you are trying to kind of operate in the best interests of everybody well, but yeah. people can be really dramatic when well I guess when their livelihood is at stake or they perceive their livelihood to be at stake or perhaps just because we're in an industry of dramatic people I don't know but people can get really dramatic and sometimes really nasty things got said for sure but right. overall it still felt like Family, it's you know my experiences were very good, but yeah, the burnout was very real because every morning you get your inbox and it's like I didn't get home page and now my business is going under. It was like no, your business is not, <laughs> it's not. But you know, but you you have to deal with that level of energy sure. <laughs> on a daily basis, and yeah, that does wear you down. I mean, I don't know who has been an account manager the longest at Beatport, but whoever it is deserves a prize. Props, mad props. <laughs> So we're kind of like moving towards you moving to Berlin, but I want to ask a little bit more about Denver and Colorado and the scene that you kind of came up through and you mentioned working at a record store as well. Yeah. I think we'd all love to hear a bit more about that. Well, truth be told, no matter how much I wax on about, you know, how great Beatport was, I would drop that and work in a record store forever if I could, if if they paid more than $6 an hour. It's the best (laughs) job ever. I think, you know, Beatport was in some ways an extension of that as just helping people find the record that they're so excited about. Mm-hmm. It was a record store called Twist and Shout. So in Bol- I went to school in Boulder, Colorado University there, and my first job was actually with, like, a, a chain record store in the mall. I just applied there because I was like, oh, my God. Like, I applied to, like, also, like, Cinnabon and, like, Paxson, <laughs> you know? Like, I applied everywhere. It's like a blanket. Let me, let me be clear. <laughs> a carpet bombing of your I was a, I was a freshman in college. Yeah. I just needed a paycheck. But I saw they were hiring. I was like, oh, my God. Could they, like, am I cool enough to work? Because I grew up in Pueblo, right? So Pueblo's, like, 
It's a st- old industrial steel town in Colorado. It is not the coolest city. Like, it's not. I don't know how else to put it. But people who get out of there tend to be pretty cool, if I do say so myself. And so I didn't think that I had any, like, currency or cool points. Like, there was nothing in my history that validated me for working in music. So even to be given an application to apply at this record store, I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) uh, They called me right back and I was like, I'm working in music, you know? Like, I just was on top of the world. And then I got there and I had to wear khakis and like a button up (laughs) denim shirt tucked in. And I had to learn, (laughs) I still remember the wins, which is welcome, inform, new release, and suggest before they cross from the tile to the carpet. But I didn't care. I was into it. And luckily, it was only like three months of that. Celine Dion's Heart Will Go On was at the top of the charts. And I'll never forget that. But I also, I discovered promos. I got to pick one promo if I was the top seller for the week which is, in retrospect, such bullshit. (laughs) They had boxes of promos in the back. They just held them. Like, you can have one promo if you do really well. So anyway, I I learned about getting promos. I was like, oh, my God, free fucking music. Are you kidding me? So after three months of that, my manager moved over to the coolest independent record store in Boulder, which was called Bart's CD Cellar. And he took me with him. And then I was just like, wow. Goodbye, everyone. Like, I'm literally the coolest person you know. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, I was also starting to be asked to put flyers out on campus for raves. And in exchange for that, I got to go to the raves for free. And I was like, oh my god, what a deal. (laughs) I get to work for three weeks. Maybe it was more than that, six weeks. And I get like a $30 ticket for free. And I got to skip the line and go straight in. And that was kind of it for me. I was like, this well, is my skipping life. skipping the line was it. <laughs> yeah. Skipping the line is still very cool, let's yeah. be honest. I think when we're talking about this era of the rave scene, I think there's a lot of things that would be familiar on all the continents in the US and in Europe and in Australia. What are your kind of most like vivid recollections of that time? So what I, what's the standout thing is that we had every different genre represented in the same party usually on the same stage. So there'd be like Omar Santana playing mega hardcore and then there'd be like a drum and bass DJ and then there'd be like Lisa Loud playing Hard House and then it'd be like Sasha. It's like, didn't matter. Like we listened to the whole thing. There wasn't enough music and there wasn't enough scene for people to get picky. (laughs) So we listened to it all and there was a chill out room always. Yeah, that's what I kind of remember is that people were way more, I mean, it sounds so cheesy, but yeah, we were real, way more united. Are you about to drop plur? <laughs> I, f- I can feel it coming. I didn't have to say it. You can feel it. You know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, plur, man. <laughs> peace, love, unity, respect for, to, for anyone yeah, who's peace, love, unity, respect. too young to know. <laughs> <laughs> they know that shit in America right now. They oh, okay. totally know it. They have okay. like little wristbands and they do, they have like plur, like handshake and they trade a wristband. There's a whole thing. Oh, wow. It's come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little frightening, but yeah. I mean, ecstasy's been around the whole time. Let's just say that much. Yeah. The one consistent factor. <laughs> I mean, in terms of your interest in electronic music, was it kind of around this time that 
you kind of defined what you liked or were drawn to particular DJs or artists or sounds? I was a house girl, mostly. I mean, yeah, you know, um, Roger Sanchez. I remember really loving Roger Sanchez and, yeah, like everything undefected at the time I was really into. And then in 2006, the fateful year... I got moved to Berlin with Beatport. How did that happen? Like, was it something that came to you or you... <laughs> no, it was Ronnie Krieger. So one of the investors, the chief investor in Beatport at the time was Native Instruments. And as a stipulation of their investment, got to put one person in place on staff at an executive level, and they chose this guy, Ronnie. And he, you know, born and raised Berlin, was based here. And I was handling the most accounts at the time and he made the decision that it would be better for me to be in Europe and to help build a team here in Berlin and I had never even been to Germany (laughs) and I still had in my head that I was going to move to England and like work for Glastonbury or the BBC or something I was like that's one step closer I'll take that (laughs) so yeah it was the summer of 2006 that I moved here and changed my life absolutely changed my life in in the best possible way. It it did show me this whole other world that I didn't know anything about. Mm. I I only knew two people. I knew Ronnie and Richie Houghton. So (laughs) I was like, hey, Richie, who should I talk to? And he introduced (laughs) me to all these people who became, you know, who are still my dearest friends. And um, I think that's when I really, you know, where my understanding of real dance music culture and the breadth of it finally solidified it and it and gave me a perspective that I regret to say I don't think a lot of people get to have of what America is and and what how it developed and who's involved and and then also as much as I could uh, the same about Europe and I'm so grateful for that and I still still feel like Berlin is home in a lot of ways I miss it a lot yeah what was the first club that you went to when you got in Berlin yeah I guess it was probably Watergate I mean, I definitely remember the first time I went to Panorama Bar. I don't think anybody will ever forget their first Panorama Bar visit. Well, maybe you can. (laughs) (laughs) Actually. Um, But, you know, I think it was probably Watergate. Or maybe it was Club Divisionaire. But in any case, it was just, it was one of the warmest summers that Berlin had ever had. The World Cup was on. People were just out. I can't describe how good the vibe was in, in the world of Berlin at that summer. It was, it, you know, it felt electric. It felt like there was not a moment in the day where you shouldn't be out experiencing the city. Um, I think I probably went to every club in the first three months. Actually, one of the first clubs, I don't know if it was the first club I went to, but it was in a swimming pool. I, I think it was a temporary venue. It wasn't a permanent club. I never went back. It had these side rooms, and then it had, like, AstroTurf in the pool. It was so fucking cool. <laughs> That's what I remember. Yeah. But that era was also, because that was around the time, or just a little bit before when I joined Beatport, and that was also, it just seemed like a very exciting era in general, because as you said, traditional vinyl sales were kind of tailing mm-hmm. off, if not kind of nosediving. Yeah. And it seemed like digital music was kind of this new frontier and in terms of digital technology for how to DJ or perform live. Is that the sense that you had as well, being in Berlin at that time? Well, yeah. I mean, well, I don't know if I'd speak too much to how people were performing. At that point, I feel like everybody had entirely switched over. Well, it was Final Scratch, wasn't it? Final Scratch was the whole kind of impetus for Beatport. That's why Native Instruments invested. That's why Richie and John Aquaviva invested. 
I think people had already kind of come out. Like, you know, I think at that point, almost everybody was on CDJs already. I would even venture to say that vinyl has made more of a comeback lately than it even had at that point already. Yeah. Um, because it was just so much easier. I mean, you know, people losing their record crate on a flight, like, that's devastating. That's a career issue. And it happens quite a bit. I mean, people, you know, carried their records as much as they could, but... Yeah, people would lose their entire cases. I mean, can you imagine that now to lose all your music? So, yeah, no, I think at that point it was very much uh, people were very well adapted to the CDJ thing, at least. We were definitely making Beatport CD wallets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a huge promo (laughs) item, which was also something I had to sell in the winds, by the way. (laughs) But I don't know how many people need CD wallets anymore, so... But yeah, at the time, I think that's how most people were doing it, burning to CDs. Yeah. And I guess around this time, this is around the time that B-Port's staff members were growing, the Berlin office was definitely growing, and there was this Mm -hmm. sense that B-Port was kind of becoming its own brand. It wasn't just a place to go and download stuff. I remember that time was a very heady time where everyone would go over to Sonar or it was really this idea of creating a lifestyle around Beatport. Yes, and it seemed like... But yes, but we didn't, did we? I mean, this is the thing. I think what, you know, the most more recent part of the story with that is that somebody thought, oh, Beatport has so much credibility with the people who matter inside of the industry, then it's just going to be so easy to transfer that to the people outside of the industry and people didn't care because you go to Beatport. I mean, if by chance you're curious enough, like what's Beatport? You go there and you're not a DJ. It's actually pretty boring. And I'm not a DJ. I mean, it's not boring to me, but of course that's a little different for me. But, um, but yeah, I think of course you start to hear these things like, Oh, that's a Beatport record. Or you start to see in everybody's press releases, like, Oh, this was a they quote. The chart on Beatport is like a measure of success. And like, you start to kind of hear it used in the industry as like an adjective that's just to be known. Mm-hmm. But I don't think outside of that anybody really cared or, or knew, and I don't think they should have been expected to. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people know what Ableton is? How many people, you know, yeah. Pioneer even. Mm-hmm. I think it doesn't actually matter outside of the people who are using it, and that's okay. But, but I don't know if it was really a lifestyle brand, except in Berlin, maybe. Yeah. And, you know... But speaking of Berlin brands, I feel like this is a really easy segue into after you left Beatport, and I know that you were kind of working on your own for a, a period of time. You'd set up your own agency, yeah. And then when you, you were you actually working for Minus as an employee, or you were kind of working no, with I was, them? I was freelance. So Beatport moved me to London for a time. That's right. Yes. Where I met Ryan Keeling. Shout out. Shout out to Ryan Keeling. Um, I worked there another time where I was in a weird place at a weird time. I was working on like a promo system that Beatport was working on with Caroline Prothero, who was managing a little known artist named David Guetta. This is why you should never trust my opinion on any music. She came, she brought she brought a CD player in. She's like, this is David's new stuff. Like, isn't this amazing? And she was playing it. And I was like, oh, yeah, good luck with that. Like, let's go too commercial and she got very busy after that and we kind of (laughs) set the promo thing aside and so Beatport moved me back to Denver and as much as Denver is a lovely city and Colorado is an amazing place I couldn't like after living in Berlin and London I just couldn't do that anymore so I left 
I was in 2009 and I moved back to Berlin and I didn't know what to do with myself, but I thought, just talk to the people you know and love and ask them what they need. And the main thing that I was hearing was people need to have more press and they need to have more exposure to their fans when labels aren't putting music out for them. Because, you know, in particular, I was talking to Mark Hool and he was on Minus and he was saying, you know, it's very difficult for me to keep my gig fees and, and frequency up when I don't have a release out, but I don't control when Rich is going to put something out. So I need to be creative about how to keep that momentum going. And I was like, okay, let me look at your Facebook. Look at me. I was like, Mark, you don't, you, know, you don't even have an official Facebook. Oh, yeah, do you think I need one? <laughs> it was like at that point in 2009. So I was like, okay. Started looking around. I'm like, all these guys have maxed out on their friends, on their personal profiles, and have not bothered to make a page. I was like sort this out. So yeah, that's what I started doing is just going, let me get your whole online presence and go after some online, you know, press and marketing. Um, so I was only doing that. And then, you know, having known Rich through all the years, he found out I was doing it for Mark and then Barham and then Magda. And he said, you know, can you do it for the whole roster and also for me? So I agreed to do that. I was doing Seth Troxler and Guy Gerber and Heidi. Shout out to Heidi. I wasn't doing that that long before I got my next job offer, but it could have been, who knows, I could be very rich right now. Probably not. <laughs> Techno artists don't make much money, but <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, I think it was needed at a time, you know, at that time, but then I think once people got it done and they, and like, I kind of gave them like a little bit of a tutorial about, you don't have to talk about what you had for lunch on Twitter. You can talk about a book you read and that that's okay. Yeah. You know, and just giving people some general advice about how to better connect with their audience and, and to relax and know that their audience will want to hear whatever they have to say. Right. If it's true to who they are, so yeah, that's kind of. I think once those that got done, then it, it you know, there wasn't a whole lot of reason to keep invoicing people after that, quite honestly. But it was needed at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it definitely sounds like it was. And I remember talking to you at this time when you were literally plucked out of Berlin again for yeah, this for the huge for this huge opportunity when I signed Skrillex. <laughs> <laughs> I did not sign Skrillex. <laughs> But you worked quite closely with him. So I did, if, yeah. if you could introduce what the job was. So I got a call from uh, Craig Kalman, well, not directly originally, that's a lie, but from Atlantic Records asking me if I would be interested in coming on board with them to be their general manager to relaunch Big Beat, which was the label that Craig Kalman, who is the current CEO of Atlantic Records, he founded it himself in like 1989, I want to say. And he had signed like, you know... Robin S. Show Me Love and Joe Manda, and he did like Bucketheads. Like he licensed in a lot of records for the states, and it was a, it was a dance music label. He was a DJ around New York, and he was selling them out of the back of his car, vinyl out of the back of his car. This label, but anyway, you know, Show Me Love was a big hit. He got picked up by Atlantic. The whole label did. He did, and long story short, whatever, 15, 20 years later, he's the CEO of Atlantic Records. So he chose me, he asked me, God knows why, <laughs> to come and relaunch the label for him. And I said no immediately. <laughs> I wasn't interested in working for majors. I had considered it when I left Beatport earlier the next, the previous summer, but it just didn't feel like the right fit for me. But um, after talking to some people and after they kept calling, it just made sense, I guess. I, I felt like I couldn't pass it up, I guess is the better way to say that. And um, 
I'm really glad I did it. Mm-hmm. Really glad, but it was really hard. Really sure. Hard. <laughs> because it, it involved not yeah. not only moving back to yeah, America like again. Berlin's like a beautiful, lovely cocoon of lovely people and good music. Sure. And we have a culture here, you know, that is not replicated of any place I know. And I was in the happy spot there. I didn't have any reason not to keep doing that. So, you know, it was the first year was definitely hard asking myself if I'd made the right decision. And I actually, I still probably ask myself if it was the right decision, but I learned so much, so much. And, it, you know, yeah, he was like, okay, so we've got Winter Gordon, who was like a singer-songwriter. We've got Chromeo. I'm like, I know Chromeo. That's good. <laughs> we've got the Teddy Bears, who are like a Swedish, like super producer group. Mostly sinks. And we got this kid named Skrillex. And I was like, okay, let me check this out. And that was, I started September of 2010. And his first EP came out October of 2010 at a very fast push mm-hmm. because Dead Mouse had asked him to go on tour. And Craig was like, you can't let him go on tour without music out. And I'm like, oh, that's something I just learned. Check. <laughs> <laughs> and from there on, it was a roller coaster. Right, because yeah. that was that the first or the album that he put out where almost every yeah, that, yeah yes every track was every in the, track was in the beatport, beatport top, top ten. 10. That really pissed people off. Right, remember? Yeah, oh, I <laughs> that do. Really pissed people off. I do. I mean, what was it like to kind of have come from the world of beatport and the world of Berlin and the way that Berlin regards itself and its levels of coolness, <laughs> and to kind of be on the other side of it? It was like being torn in two different directions. It was really hard. I, for me. Does everybody feel so sorry for me? In your big corner office with a view of the park. Yeah. I know, right? Well, if you knew how sensitive I am to like having good relationships with people I respect, then you would know, yeah, that was really hard. Especially because people were like, fuck him, he's a fucking loser. And I'm like, he's one of the nicest people I've ever met. So I felt really torn just on a personal level, let alone professionally, and having to represent somebody who was really controversial at the time. And it was also really rocky inside of, of the relationship, inside the building, because he was making so much money so quickly and they'd never seen anything like it because of the 360 deal. Right. And 360 deals are when you make money off everything the artist does. A traditional label deal is obviously just from the music side of things, but he had one of these new deals, which was becoming quite the thing, had been for a few years at that point. And he'd signed away like a pretty aggressive amount of his touring to the label but in his mind he was going to be touring a band and he was going to be you know he was going to be needing a lot of our investment from our end so it made sense but when he just had to take a usb stick and he didn't even need a manager and he just showed up to a gig and he could do five a week it was just like he didn't expect it and the label you know looking at the financials was like what (laughs) And uh, so he got, you know, superstar VIP treatment in the building immediately. So it was, it was actually really cool. I got to see in a very short span of time what happens for an artist when they're on fire like that and what, you know, arguably the, the heaviest, you know, machinery in the, in the music industry as a whole can do when they set their minds to it. Right. And I guess similarly, I mean, this kind of marked the beginning of this, like, American EDM peak 
Yeah. Because there was, there was really a time, well, I remember, it was, the, you know, the cover yeah. of Billboard magazine, like yeah. EDMs taking over America, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So how was it to see this kind of supposed cultural shift from the inside as well? Yeah, again, it was really very soul-crushing in a way because I'm like, this is all I've known is this underground scene. This is all I... I don't even understand who these people are, where they've come from, but yet they have just as much right to be here as we do, I suppose, right? I mean, that's how music works. That's how it evolves. I mean, you know, every genre has evolved that way to stuff that, you know, the founders of the genre would find appalling, but that's the way it works. Um, so, yeah, I mean, EDM was already a term when I got there, I remember. And I, you know, you make your little effort. You're like, we shouldn't use that word. It's not cool. And they're like, yeah, you're not going to fight Billboard, you know? Like, they've already decided it's over. I came to terms with it a lot more quickly than most of my colleagues, or even still, maybe this today, up until today, people have, um, of just saying, you know, it's, you don't own it. You don't own a genre. As much as I would like to say I do, there's people above me, there's people who came before me who are like, who the fuck are you? You know? So, I mean, I think that's just the way it goes. And I had to come to peace with it faster. And I think I'm still sad, of course, that our happy little cocoon got burst. You know? I, I mean, it would have been nice if everybody stayed friends forever. And that's certainly not how it is now. Certainly not. Things, you know, when there's real money involved, people are not so nice. And the friendships you thought you had are all of a sudden just relationships. So, yeah, that's the way it goes. I mean, I guess in a way that's kind of what I was maybe alluding to in my first question about Ibiza, just this idea of these idealistic scenes which kind of come together organically but once um, commercial interests and artist egos and the ability to make money become involved that it starts to taint it. Yeah. A little bit. You know, the inside politics, I'm sure, are horrific. I've purposely almost not bothered to ask because I kind of don't want to know about how ugly it gets and, like, which club gets to have which artist and how much they get paid and who they get to have on their lineup. I'm sure it's awful. But from my perspective, not being so much on the inside of that now because as my career has evolved... That's not really what I deal with on a day-to-day. I would say, you know, to see Hot Sense 82, Headlining Club, or Eats Everything, or Jamie Jones is, like, up on these billboards, for me, I'm like, well, we kind of won because it's not Calvin Harris or Skrillex or David Guetta. I'm sure they have their nights, too. I don't, I don't actually don't know. But, you know, to see people up there and to know that those nights are raking in just as much cash is very, I think, very encouraging. Okay. Um, I just want to ask one more thing about your time with Big Beat, because I know that you were general manager, um, and this is actually my opportunity to ask you a question I've been wanting to ask. What does that actually involve? Because it seems (laughs) like it's all-encompassing, all-covering, but, I mean, what did your day-to-day actually Um, look like? So it just meant that I was across every single fucking email that went through. (laughs) Which was a lot. You know, when they hired me, it was just me. I was the only employee of the label. They had an A&R who she had just graduated. Her name's Gina Tucci, shout out. Uh, She had just graduated from being an assistant for Craig Kalman to finally getting to be just on the A&R staff. But she had to A&R for the pop staff and the R&B staff. And, you know, she wasn't my employee. And then we had a guy, Matt Engelman, shout out, who was up in the uh, sales department. And his job was sales. So he wasn't, I didn't get to tell him to do anything, but he could contribute 
obviously a ton of help in talking to iTunes and uh, like Hot Topic because at the time Spotify wasn't really a thing. You know, he would talk to anybody who was doing sales for us and, and he could, you know, maybe give us a little push because it was his passion. But I didn't have a staff. So I had to build that staff up. So that was really my main job was to create a team and build a brand identity and to be the driving force for this label to once again. So, yeah, okay, the artists that got put onto my roster originally had nothing to do with them. But once they're there, I carry the flag through that building and I go and knock on people's doors and I ask why things don't get done and I ask for more money. <laughs> That's the number one thing you do is ask for more money on behalf of, of the projects. And then, you know, slowly over time, you, you know, I had to work with tons of external, you know, record promoters, radio promo and, and indie press you know, PR and, and get them paid, that kind of thing. So yeah, I guess I, the best way I would say is at the beginning, you just had to create the identity of the label and decide who needed to be inside of it and get those people. I would just wait until somebody asked me for a guest list and I'd be like, you're working on my team. <laughs> because <laughs> so that, yeah, I did, yeah, because I didn't know. I was like, I didn't get to have a budget to hire people. So I had just had to like, like deputize people inside the building and say, what do you do? You kind of work for Beatport now, you know? Like, um, and slowly but surely to be like, get them onto my team. I think I only got to have like two actual external hires. Everything else was just stealing internally. <laughs> I know that you've been in the position to kind of build teams across your career, generally speaking. I think particularly for this audience, it might be offer them some insight. Like what, what are the kind of qualities that you look for besides, you know, someone who has an encyclopedic knowledge of the minus back catalogue or something like that. What, yeah. I mean, what, what are the key characteristics that you look for? I know, this sounds so cheesy, but I really mean it. Just to love the music so much because you can't teach somebody that. You can teach somebody everything else, but you can't teach somebody to be excited. And so finding somebody who's just super fucking excited about it is the number one thing. And then you have to find out if they're an idiot or not. <laughs> Hit or miss. No, I, I, you know, I, the few people listening to this who know who they are that I hired, it's, it was because they were passionate about music. Were they great assistants? No, they were not. But you only have to put up with that for so long. And then they bring with them this, you know, excitement and knowledge and tell you about the new coolest thing that they're so excited about. So you're on it before somebody else. And that's so important. That's, that's, I can't say how important that is. And I think... I would just say that, you know, anybody who is looking for somebody that will just do what they ask is, is doing themselves a disservice. I know that when Skrillex won his Grammy that he gave you a <laughs> shout-out and it felt like everybody in Berlin was as proud of you as your mother or father would have been. Would that have been a highlight for you? And if, if not, what, what would be your main highlight from your time at Big Beat? <sighs> obviously doing the salt and sass, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, no, things like this are really important to me. It's more important to me to talk to this group of people who I, I more identify with than, no offense to anyone who might hear this, but, you know, kids that are trying to get into a major label because there's definitely a difference of motive. So I think to be able... I've spoken to ADE a bunch of times. I, I spoke this last time to a bunch of people who had to submit like uh, you know proposals of why they deserve to come and hear these people speak and then they got this free 
separate conference and a circus tent was super awesome. Like things like that are super cool. Um, yes, of course, being sh- that's so stupid. Of course, being shouted out at the Grammys <laughs> is awesome. I mean, it's funny because I wasn't there. I, I was on my way to the Grammys, but I was in a car on my way and they do this pre pre-screen, whatever, they, they, they film it in advance before the actual Grammys start. Um, so it was only on the internet, so my phone just started like blowing up, and I didn't actually get to see it, I don't think, till the next day. But yeah, of course that warms my heart very much. Like I said, I, I have a massive amount of respect for Sonny. He's one of the most generous, most artistic, and, and with the best motives that I've met and he taught me a lot a lot about what true artistry is he got there by sheer will nobody gave him anything and sheer talent and whether you like him or not I was super inspired by that and it 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 led me to understand that that's the kind of people I want to work with Mm -hmm. whether they make music I totally love or not you'll find that you know I'll still go to a Skrillex show because I understand that he, what he's doing, and it's, and it's real to me, and that excites me, and it makes the performance exciting and good to me. So, yeah, it was, it's a huge honor that he shouted me out. But once again, you are on the move. <laughs> on the move. <laughs> how, how many years after you joined Big Beat did you end up back at Beatport for your second, oh. second tenure? I rejoined Beatport in January of 2015 in a roundabout way. I got burnt out at Big Beat. You just do. You just you get to the point where managers are constantly asking you why things aren't happening for them. And the truth is you don't know. The answers are very political and not, you know, filtered down through the whole company why they didn't get a radio slot because being a major is all about radio at the end of the day. So, yeah, I got really burnt out and I actually left to take this opportunity at SFX, which is the company that had purchased Beatport, doing artist development, which sounded really exciting, where I got given, like, a cash fund to just spend on people that I thought were cool <laughs> and give them like, you know, money to, to further their careers and like work on marketing packages and cooperative packages throughout the whole SFX conglomerate. And it sounded great, but unfortunately four months into that, they switched CEOs and because it was the last thing to launch and I was the last person in, it was the first thing out. And they gave me the opportunity to either take a severance package or move over to Beatport. And being at Beatport from 2003 to 2009, it was such an exciting time. I have such nice, wonderful memories from that. It just, I think it was an emotional decision to go back. So I went back, maybe not in their best situation, and maybe they didn't need me necessarily, I think is more the way to put it. And um, I mean, how was it for you to kind of, I mean, I know you weren't like 100% removed from Beatport by any means, but to kind of be back involved in this company that had been, I guess, such a huge part of your career, perhaps 10 years before, like, what was that experience like going back and seeing it have a different structure? And also you were based in New York rather than being in Berlin. It was hard because I just wanted to make all of the decisions. (laughs) I just wanted to be the absolute end authority on every single conversation and just be like, this is, this is what we're doing. Whether I knew best or not, I certainly didn't, by the way. But, um, 
yeah, it was hard. It was hard because you kind of have to come back into this like operational structure. And now there's this whole other company that's what, you know, it's not just that B port has an operational structure, but then there was this whole other ownership that had all these other motives that they were trying to, you know, execute on. And so it was frustrating because I, I still love the brand. I want Beeport to carry on forever. <laughs> I think it's the motives of the company and who they are and what they've contributed are deserving of a long life. Um, and I think they will have one. People still, you know, there's not another service out there that provides at the quality level that they do that, you know, need for those files. When you're an artist and you're working with files as if they're your paints, it's different than, you know, it's, it's the difference between buying a painting or buying paints. Do you know what I mean? So um, I think people misunderstood for a long time what they were about and what they were there to do. And, you know, I think that's now back in check, mm-hmm. which is great. I'm very happy to see them doing so well now. The decisions that were made in the end were right, and now they're in a better place. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of glad I got cut because I was part of the excess that was unnecessary, the, trying to be more than they actually were. Right. And I don't know, from the outside, it looks perhaps a little bit symptomatic of this idea of this EDM bubble. That's what, yeah. That had a very short lifespan because it expanded That's what I was saying earlier. Between, like, Beatport yeah. is not a brand that's supposed to exist outside of... Mm-hmm. The professionals. I mean, you know, I don't know, you know, the names of people who make bike tires. I mean, I don't know that stuff. You're not supposed to. It's supposed to be a professional's brand, and it should be. And I think it's back where it belongs. I mean, and what's your view, if you had to kind of give an overview of where you think this um, kind of crossover of EDM or whatever you want to call it into kind of pop mainstream music in America, I suppose, but also in a wider sense, because we still have these, like, huge festivals which are happening all over the world and in particular parts of Europe. Like, what's your... As somebody who was kind of at the coalface of it to a degree? What's next, you mean? You know, take its temperature. Like, what, what's the health of it? What do you think is coming I next? I mean, it's, uh, it's obviously here to stay. I mean, it's obviously here to stay. There's enthusiasm for dance music in America that is with an audience that doesn't even understand, you know, like, just like I didn't. They don't know anything about European music and club culture. But that doesn't mean that they're any less enthusiastic or any any less involved. And I can say that's at full steam still in America. Um, I guess if you're being very, like, you know, super professional about it, you'd say, oh, are the pop records still being influenced by, like, the EDM or electronic music production? I mean, I would say it's gotten a little more interesting of late with the kind of producers that are influencing pop music, which is, I guess, to some degree, a temperature-taking of the health of that genre. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we should always look to that as... I mean, we never needed it before. Right. Why should we need it now? Yeah. And after you finished working with Beatport and SFX the second time, actually the last time I saw you, which was about six months ago, and you were on a period of, what should we call it? You can, you can say it. <laughs> Listable, uh, 2016. <laughs> Hashtag. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. After, after Beatport, you know, caught 50 or so people, I just couldn't wait to go travel and just go do whatever the fuck I wanted for a while. So I did. I put everything in storage. I wanted to go to Into the Valley in Sweden. I wanted to go to Deckmantle. I wanted to go to Glastonbury. And I thought, the easiest way to accomplish those things is to not have a job. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I just Hashtag did it. Listable. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag listable 2016. So I spent that summer, I went to DEMF, I went to Primavera Sound, I went to Secret Solstice in Iceland, I went to, yeah, Glastonbury, which is incredible. I mean, not my first time, but the best time by far so far. Yeah, I spent the whole summer going to festivals and just saying, like, this is just, I just need to kind of breathe out and just reconnect with what makes me happy and maybe along the way stumble across what my next career move will be. Mm-hmm. But no pressure for that, just to just go relax. Though I did, and it was, <laughs> I was kind of like, maybe it'd be like three months. And then it was like, okay, maybe it'll be six months. And I was like, okay, eight months is probably enough. I'm going to start, like, <laughs> looking for a job, I guess. And then, of course, that took... That took another four months. But yeah, I've landed somewhere now. Where have you landed? I have landed at Dubset. Um, And as we were saying earlier, I'm definitely going to tell you about it because I'm trusting that you guys are nerdy enough that this is going to be interesting. (laughs) I was like, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? And I had been looking at this company, Dubset, because for me, I'm not a DJ, but I obviously am a huge enthusiast of electronic music and I consume it through DJ mixes primarily, you know, podcasts and the like. And it's really frustrating, right, when you have something you love and you know where it's located and you go and listen to it and then it's gotten pulled down and that's very frustrating. And nobody wants to download every file anymore. That's not realistic. So I thought to myself, whoever is working on the solution for legalizing and legitimizing and sorting out the problem with DJ mixes, I want to be on that team and I want to work diligently towards that. And I'd heard about Dubset and what they were doing. That is what they're doing. Among also other things that have to do with content that's owned by someone else being used by a user, user-generated content. I was going to write, I actually had written a letter to them, written a, an email to their CEO, and then thought, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I want to be at a startup again. Kind of want to look for something with some security. <laughs> and uh, it didn't matter because they contacted me. So, yeah, I've, I've taken a role. I am the VP of talent and content. Well, I think we haven't added that second part yet. but <laughs> You are now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's done. I'm the VP of talent for, uh, for Dubset. And the goal is monumental, but it's the right way. And I guess I tie it back to Beatport and knowing that what I'm telling you is what you should be doing. This is the right way to do it. But, you know, we're in early days still. But the idea is to sign every rights holder, every publisher, every master label owner, and get them to at least register their catalog with our service so that we can fingerprint things as they come in. You can upload a radio show, a bootleg remix, or even original material containing a sample. And without any kind of paperwork, it just goes to Apple and Spotify. Um, We're working on a revenue share model so that if it performs very well, you can actually get paid for that, and you'll never have to worry about takedowns. It's as legitimate as any other content put onto the services. It's very idealistic, but that's why I like it. It's how it should be. So I'm I'm in for the challenge. I mean, it seems like a consistent theme of your... (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Idealism and things that should, things that make sense to you, like you have a a sense for it. Yeah. You know, to give people the control, I mean, you can't fight the culture that has, you know, hip-hop originally and dance music, of course, DIY culture. 
that really comes from not having your own money or tools to lay down a vocal. It's not necessarily that there's no creativity. In a lot of cases, it's just that there's no resources to do that. Other other times, it's because there's no creativity, let's be clear. (laughs) But to allow those people to still build their careers and show their talent and, and to kind of loosen the stranglehold on owning a right, like as a label and saying... I don't want anyone else to ever do anything with this that I'm not aware of. Well, now you can be aware of it, but then relax and let it go because it's all promotional. And now they can actually get paid for that use where, you know, in the past, if they collect at all, it's not as much. But with these streaming services, you know, hopefully they'll be getting the the full amount they deserve. Well, I feel like we've kind of scratched the surface. <laughs> Don't that, sound that, too pitchy. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's a really nice kind of resolution. Yes. But I'd love to know, just before we wrap up, like, it seems like you've kind of held on to this enthusiasm and passion and love. So kind of coming through that very non-cynical point of view, which is actually super refreshing to encounter, what do you see in the future? Like, where, where do you see this scene going? What would you like to see? You know, I think we should embrace the diversification of things like, you know, like Flume or Flying Lotus or, you know, I mean, I mean, there's there are these people who represent us, but don't Daft Punk, you know, people who represent us, but don't. And just to like kind of embrace and understand that the genre is now broader than the culture, in fact, and that there'll be subcultures that, you know, maybe don't even understand or see each other but that to celebrate all of it. At the end of the day, electronically produced music is going to just be all music. There's definitely instances where I think, why do I feel, why do I feel ownership over this? Like, why do I feel ownership over Portishead? It's a band. Like, they perform live, they don't DJ, but I'm like, no, but that's ours. Like, we own that. It's like, essentially, all music is going to not be ours anymore. And I think to just embrace that thread it through, make sure that the younger cultures, I mean, the younger, you know, generations, the younger kids understand where things came from, but not to be so judgmental about if they're not doing it exactly the way you think they should. I guess that's kind of cheesy, but that's how I feel. Wise words. Thank you, Liz. Thank you.